Well, there was a young soldier who was going through basic training, and as he wrote home to his mom to tell her how things were going, he said uh, in his letter, after yet another grueling day of obstacle courses, drills, and a, and a long force hike, his uh, platoon of raw recruits fell into bed exhausted. And as the lights were out in the barrack and as they were there in the darkness, he heard a lone voice uh, pray a prayer, and it went like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, if I should die before I wake, thank you, Lord. And after a brief silence, several other soldiers cried out, Amen. (laughs) Have you ever found yourself wanting to pray a prayer like that? Have you ever been so worn out, you, you just wished it would all end, that it would be all over? As we turn in our Bible today to 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to see a prayer like that. And it may surprise you to see that the one praying that prayer was Elijah. Elijah, the great prophet. The Elijah that we've been looking at over the past several weeks. Now, as we've looked at him, we've seen lots of things about him. And one that I continually remind you of is in James 5.17, we're told that he was a man like us. And today we're going to see how true that was. Because as this great prophet goes to God once again in prayer, 1 Kings 19.4 tells us, he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life. Now, as I said, you might wonder, is is this the same guy we've been looking at? I mean, remember who Elijah is. He's he's a man who has seen miracle after miracle. It, It began as he was taken into the wilderness during a time of drought, and there were ravens who fed him. Then he went to Zarephath where a widow fed him. And it was there in Zarephath that he was used by God to bring a little boy back to life. And and after that, Elijah saw many other great things. He was the one who went up to Mount Carmel and he prayed that fire would fall from heaven and it did. And then he prayed that rain would come, rain that hadn't touched the land of Israel for three and a half years and a flood came. And after that, he he was there as God used him and to to wipe out the 400 and false prophets of Baal. And then he ran a a mini marathon, 20 miles uh, to, to Jezreel. And by all accounts, Elijah should have been on the top of the world. But as we're going to see today, it it can be a short distance from the top of the mountain to the valley of despair. In 1 Kings 19, 1 through 4, it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And it was that he was afraid, and he rose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey further into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. So as, as the curtain opens here on this scene, remember King Ahab has just gotten in his chariot from Mount Carmel and he's, he's gone to Jezreel, this 20-mile journey. And as he arrives at the palace, his, his wife, the wicked queen Jezebel, is looking around. She goes, where, where are the 450 prophets of Baal who went with you to Mount Carmel? And, and Ahab says, well, you see, there was this showdown and they all got killed. What do you mean they all got killed? Well, Elijah, he he killed them all. Now, remember, Jezebel had been invited to come to Mount Carmel as well with her 400 false prophets who worshipped the Asherah, and she had stayed home 
there. And we've got Elijah who has run to the royal city, and he's right there in the city. Now, as, as he's there, and, and Jezebel hears this news, it would have been first disbelief. And then it boils over into anger, where she says, I'm going to kill Elijah. And now it's Elijah's turn to be one who has wondered what has happened. Because remember, this is a guy who has seen God doing all these great things. And as God says, uh, Elijah, I need you to go there to Jezreel, he probably thought, well, this is just round two. This is going to finish off what was started. We're going to kill the 400 false prophets of the Asherah. Jezebel's going to flee in fear. It's going to be the end of pagan worship in Israel. But instead, as he gets there, what he finds is instead of fleeing in fear, uh, this woman says, I'm going to kill him by this time tomorrow. And, and instead of uh, finding her running, and we find Elijah's the one who wants to run. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Why didn't he just say, bring it on? Why didn't he say, good, this is, this is going to be the end of it? But instead, he, he's afraid for his life. I think what happens here is mirrored by a statement that Vince Lombardi, the late great football coach, once said. He said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. I mean, what is it that changed from a chapter ago where he was willing to face 450 prophets and now he's afraid of one woman? I mean, this, this is Elijah who, as you rewind the tape and you remember what's happened, he's just run this mini marathon, right? 20 miles. How tired would you be after a 20-mile uh, supersonic run from Mount Carmel to Jezreel? And before that, he was up on Mount Carmel. It started that very morning where he hiked up to the top of this little mountain. And when he was there, remember, he hauled 12 large stones and he built this altar. And then he was out in the sun all day as he watched the, the false prophets doing their, their dancing around and cutting themselves and everything. And then Elijah butchers an entire bull. He prepares this, this sacrifice. He places it on the altar. Then he pours barrels of water on it. He, he goes to the Lord in prayer. Fire falls and consumes the sacrifice. When this is over, he rounds up the 450 false prophets. They're dragged down into the valley, so he goes down the mountain. There he swings the sword 450 times to kill them all. He hikes back up the mountain, gets down on his knees. He prays again before the little mini-marathon that we just talked about. He was a man just like us. He was exhausted. Would you be tired after a day like that? Think about Jesus Christ. He was God. In the flesh, God took on flesh and blood. And it tells us that as he took on the limitations of what we experience, a physical body like this, was Jesus ever physically worn out? What about the time he was in the front of the boat during a raging storm and ice-cold waters washing over the bow of the boat just all over Christ, and he doesn't even wake up, he's that physically exhausted? How many of you sitting here this morning are tired? When is the last time... Yeah. Well, what did he say? I was asleep. Right? When is the last time you felt fully rested, to be honest? You know, there are times I get up here to preach and I look out and people are asleep before I've even said one word. So I know it's not me, right? You're, you're, you're asleep because it's the first time you've stopped moving all week. And you sit down and I see what happens. You go, oh. And you fall asleep because you're tired. You're worn out. You know, we're not the Energizer Bunny like that commercial where he keeps going and going and going. If we push past a limit, there's going to be a crash. And, and, it, and it can be more than just feeling fatigued. It can go deeper into this area of depression. 
As you think about how tired Elijah was that I just mentioned, it tells us in the text in verse 3 that after the threat, he leaves Jezreel and he goes to Beersheba in verse 3. That means he went another hundred miles to the south. And when he gets there, it says he leaves his servant and he goes further into the wilderness. He goes into this desert area. And as he's going there, he is he collapses in exhaustion and he sees a little bit of shade and he crawls under this juniper tree uh, that's a little desert bush type of thing. And he gets under there and he collapses in exhaustion. And that's where we read this prayer where he says, Lord, let me die. Do you think he meant that? I mean, if he really wanted to die, what did he have to do? All he had to do was stay there in Jezreel. Jezebel said, hey, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be dead. I mean, why go two more days running down the road if you really want to die? Just sit there and wait for it, right? But as we look at Elijah's request here, it's, it's not something he really wants. It's just a desperate cry of a guy who says, I've run out of any reserve and I'm just tired. So, Lord, this is the easy way out. Let me die. Now, as this man of prayer prays this prayer, does God answer it? If you were here last week, you you remember the sermon last week was principles of prayer from the prophet. And we said we're to model our prayer life after the things we see Elijah doing. I mean, here's a guy who has prayed and seen miracle after miracle after miracle. He's a guy who knew how to pray. And so as he prays this prayer, why doesn't God answer his request? Well, you recall that one of the things we saw last week is if what we're asking God to do is outside of the will of God, God is not going to answer that prayer. God didn't want Elijah dying at that moment. The Bible's clear that God has ordained and numbered our days. He says, Elijah, your room's not ready in heaven. This isn't your day. You know, it's interesting, of all the prayers Elijah prays, this one doesn't go uh, answered. Not only here in the text, do you remember that there are only two people in the Bible that are listed as never physically dying on the earth? One was Enoch and the other was Elijah. As you look at 2 Kings, you see that in in the book of 2 Kings, Elijah never dies. God takes him home in a chariot of fire in 2 Kings 2.11. So it's interesting, this is a prayer that never goes answered. How many times have you prayed for something and God didn't answer it the way you wanted And while you may have been disappointed at the moment, did you ever look back and later say, God, thank you for not giving me what I wanted. Thank you for not saying yes to what I asked you for. And this is what's happening here. Elijah asked for something, and he doesn't recognize why at the moment God doesn't give him what he wants. But there are sometimes, honestly, we're never going to know why God didn't say yes to us here on earth. But when we get home to heaven, we'll see all the things he saved us from. And as Elijah prays for death here, he's wiped out. It's his easy way out. And some of you this morning may feel a lot like Elijah. Honestly, you're under this same desert bush right now, collapsed in exhaustion, physically fatigued, spiritually wiped out. And you're thinking the the easiest way out is just to go home to heaven. God, just let me go. Let let my life be done here on earth because heaven's going to be great. Friends, it's going to be greater than we can ever imagine. But do you realize that sometimes God doesn't yet let us go because he says, I still have great things for you to do here. I'm not done with you here on earth. And in those times where we find ourselves in one of those dark places, we can can make a mistake that we see Elijah doing here in verse 3 because it says Elijah had a helper with him. But when he got to Beersheba, he left his servant there. You know, when we're feeling discouraged, depressed, and wiped out, what do we often want to do? Be alone, right? 
The worst thing we can do in those moments sometimes is be by ourselves. And, and, and we make the mistake that Elijah does here, and we push people away from us that God has given to us to help us. And in those moments, we can compound the feelings of loneliness or despair when we push people away. Instead, what God says is, I want you to be honest with the people I've given you. Turn to somebody and say, look, I'm wiped out. I'm spent. I need help. Don't push the person away. Don't put on a facade and smile and say everything's great when you're, you're cratering and collapsing. God says be honest. Cry out and let people know. There's a little boy who was in his room one night and there's this thunderstorm. Lightning's flashing. Thunder's booming. This little boy's in the dark in his bed alone and he's scared and he cries out, Daddy, Daddy, I need you. Father comes running into the room, son, what's wrong? Are you okay? And, and, and he comes alongside his son and he says, Daddy, I'm scared. And he says, son, it's okay. You're safe. You're in bed. The roof's over your head. God is here with you. He's watching you. You're safe. He's going to protect you. You're okay. And he goes, Daddy, I know God is here. I know God's protecting me, but right now I need somebody with flesh on. You ever felt that way? Do you, do you need somebody sometimes just to hold your hand? to hug you, just to sit with you and say, look, you're not alone. You know, God has given us one another for that reason. God knows and he gives us others to help us. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Ecclesiastes 4.9-11 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. If you're struggling right now through a difficult time, look at the friends God has given you. Look at the family who is with you. Look around right now because this is your family. This church is your family. God has given us one another for this reason. It's one of the reasons the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, when we come to church, what we find out is we're not alone. We live in a society and a world right now that, that wants us to believe that as Christians we're crazy. And that we're all alone and we're out of touch and, and, and our faith is something that the world doesn't need right now. And we must be, you know, out of our minds. And when we come here, what we recognize is we're, we're not alone. There are others who believe the way we believe. There are others here to strengthen and support and encourage and uphold us. It says as the day is drawing near, as times get harder and harder. And, and, and knowing that, when we walk through the doors of Wayside, we need to be those who look around and say, who here needs, a, who here needs an encouraging word? Who here needs a hug? Who needs to see a smile for the first time all week, maybe in a month? Or more. That's why God has given us one another. It's why you hear me say all the time that we need to make the whole campus a welcome center, not just when we have that turn and greet somebody and say, Hi, how are you doing? Good. And you've already turned and you're, you're talking to somebody else. I mean, look at the person and say, How are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? Linger after the service a little, sit and talk to somebody. When, you, when you're walking across the parking lot, when you're in the halls and you see somebody who looks lost, say, Hey, can I help you? 
Can I show you where to check your kids in in the kids zone? Can I, can I show you, why don't you come to my adult Bible fellowship with me? Or what are you doing after church? Let's go grab some lunch or something. You know, beginning tomorrow, there's going to be over 500 kids and, and the hundreds of parents who go with those kids and then the 300-plus volunteers who are going to be running Vacation Bible School. This place is going to be packed with people, some who have been a part of Wayside for years and others. It's going to be their first time walking on this property. And they don't know what next week is going to look like. And people are looking just for a kind word, a smiling face, a place to connect. And I'm so grateful for all of you who have already uh, been setting up and serving. And there were hundreds of people being trained today for next week. And, and, and it's not just what happens on Sunday or during the middle of the week. It's, it's what happens when we walk out of the doors of Wayside and God sends us into our mission fields that are called our workplaces, the bases where we serve, the schools that we may be in. What God says is we can be an encouragement there. We can find others who, who need the light of the gospel and the darkness of the world around us. You know, another mistake that Elijah made was that he took his eyes off of God. First, he pushed away the people that God had given him to help. And second, he turns away from God and he focuses instead on the storm around him. As he hears the words of Jezebel, those howling winds of threats that came, he, he, he lost sight of God and he looked at her and he began to sink. It's like what happened to Peter. Have you read there in Matthew 14 where Jesus sent the disciples ahead on the boat and as they were in the storm-tossed wave, it says Christ was coming walking on the water. And as, as they look out and they see Jesus walking uh, on the storm-tossed waves, Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat. And he walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and he began to sink and he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Peter gets out of the boat. He's walking on water. We read that and go, oh, have you been walking on water lately? I mean, Peter's walking on water in this huge, massive storm. And he's walking along, things are great, and suddenly he, he loses sight of the Lord and he looks at the waves and the wind. And it says at that moment he begins to sink. When you face a storm in your life, what do you do? Do you lock your eyes on the Lord? Or do you look around at the, the wind and the waves and begin to sink? If you find yourself sinking this morning, we need to do as Peter did. We need to cry out to God for his help. Now, now what happens if... Our prayer when we pray is not, Lord, save me, but it's Elijah's, Lord, just take me. What's God going to do with that prayer? Well, we've already seen that he will not answer something outside of his will. The other thing the Bible tells us is when we don't know how to pray as we should, God is there and he knows our needs. Romans 8, 26 through 27 says, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The good news is, friends, if all you can do is cry out, Help! If all you can do when you're flat on your back is look up and say, oh, God, he knows your need. And he's already at work to meet your need. Look at how he ministers to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 5 through 8. It says, and he lay down and he slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, arise, eat. 
And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and he lay down again. He's physically refreshed, and he's exhausted still. He falls dead asleep again. And the angel of the Lord, it says, came again a second time. And he touched him. And he said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose, and he ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Dr. Lewis Sperry Chafer was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. And as he founded this seminary to train men and women for ministry, as he founded this school where missionaries and pastors and others were prepared to go out and share the Word of God, he was, he was not only first president, but he was a professor there and he taught many of these folks. And as, as he would go into class, what he would tell them is, he'd say the most spiritual thing you can do, the best preparation you can have some days is not to spend another hour in prayer, It's not to open the Word and spend another uh, long time studying the Scriptures. The most spiritual thing you can do sometimes, Dr. Chafer said, is to go to bed and get a good night of sleep. God made us to rest. It's why one of the commandments is to keep the Sabbath day holy, to get a day off, to take some time to rest and refresh. God made us. He knows what our needs are. And as he moves to minister to Elijah, the first thing he does is address the physical fatigue of Elijah. He says, you need to rest. You need refreshment. Jesus did the same thing in John chapter 21. As you read John 21, you'll see that Peter, who had denied the Lord three times and had, you know, kind of been on the out after the resurrection, everybody's kind of looking at Peter, this guy who had, you know, been bragging and had kind of lost his place among the disciples, he felt like. And as Christ came to him, you'll recall Jesus was there on the shore. The guys had been out all night fishing in the boat, and they look to the shore, and they see see this uh, person that turns out to be the Lord. And when Peter figures out it's Jesus, what does he do? He strips off his clothes, he jumps into the water, he swims ashore, he gets up there, and and you remember the the passage, he's running around like a banshee, he's doing everything he can to serve Jesus, and he's standing there dripping wet, he's tired, they've been up all night fishing, he's hungry, he hasn't had breakfast. And what does Jesus do? He says, Peter, come here. Stand by the fire. You're wet, you're cold, you're shivering, warm up, dry off. Peter, you haven't had any breakfast, eat. You guys all eat. You all need to eat. And then after addressing the physical needs, Christ moves to restore Peter publicly in front of the disciples. He meets the spiritual needs. And this is what's happening with Elijah. Elijah's flat worn out. God could have come in and addressed the spiritual side of things. But the first thing he says is you need to be refreshed. You need to rest. You need some food in your stomach. You know, isn't it neat to know that God who neither, who neither needs rest nor refreshment knows we need those things and is willing to meet that need. Another thing we see in this passage is that even though Elijah had taken a trip outside of God's will, he was not outside of God's care or concern. This is a guy who said, I'm done. I'm running away. Just let me die. God could have said to him, you know, you've walked away from me. You want to die, so fine, you do that. I'll just get somebody else. I'll raise somebody else up to take out Ahab and Jezebel. I'm done with you. But instead of abandoning Elijah, he comes alongside and he cares for him and he meets his needs. And friends, God has that same care and concern for you this morning. Maybe you've run away from God. Maybe you're far from him this morning. Maybe you've turned your back. Maybe you've said, I'm just done. And you think God's going to say, fine, I'm done with you. But he doesn't do that. 
The scriptures tell us he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Even when we were at our worst before we had a relationship with him. It says in Romans 5 eight, God demonstrated his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you. He cares for you and he knows your needs. He knows your needs for a savior and he knows your needs for your day-to-day life. And after feeding Elijah, after giving him some rest and refreshment, he says, now we're going to work on the spiritual side. And he tells him, I want you to go to Mount Horeb. In the scriptures, that's the same place as Mount Sinai. And if you know much about Mount Sinai, that is a very special place in terms of relationships with God and people. It's there that he gave the law to the nation of Israel. It's there the covenants have been renewed. It's there that he says to Elijah, I want you and I to have a time of communion in the wilderness. Now, the physical distance was another 200 miles to the south. It would have taken about two weeks for for him to walk there. But we read in the passage, he was out there in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. Now, the scriptures don't tell us what's happening during that time, but what we know from other places in the Bible is the wilderness is a place of refining. It's a place of communion with God. And so God was at work in some way preparing and and restoring and changing Elijah. Elijah. And after he does this, it tells us in in 1 Kings 19, 9 through 14, then he came there to a cave and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenants, torn down thy altars, killed thy prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. So Elijah is there in this cave. He's hiding out. And he says, God, I'm it. There's nobody else left. That's why I'm hiding in the cave. Now, in the New Testament, we're told something about hiding our light and how we're not to do it, right? Jesus says in Matthew 5:15 and 16, Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, that's a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So you have Elijah, and, he, and he's hiding out in the cave. God's God's recommissioned him. He's restored him. He said, I've got you ready for work. And what are you doing? You're hiding. Is there anyone here this morning hiding out in a cave, so to speak? Are you hiding your light? Now, maybe you're saying, okay, Roger, back off. The the reason I'm hiding out right now is because uh, I've been working for the Lord for a long time. We sound a lot like Elijah, right? I've been zealous for the Lord. I've been doing all these things. If you were to go to my school with me, you'd see there's nobody else who's sharing their faith but me. At my workplace, I'm the only one who stands for the Lord. I alone am doing God's work. And if it wasn't for me, God's work wouldn't get done at all. Anybody feel that way this morning? There's a a piece that was written by an anonymous author, and it's titled, I'm Tired. I should have listened to this. Yes, I'm tired. For several years, I've been blaming it on middle age, poor blood, lack of vitamins, air pollution, dieting, and a dozen other maladies that make you wonder if life is really worth living. But now I find out that it ain't that. I'm tired because I'm overworked. The population of this country is 200 million. 84 million are retired, so that leaves 116 million to do the work. There are 75 million in school, which leaves 41 million to do the work. 
Of this total, there are 22 million employed by the government, so that leaves 19 million to do the work. (laughs) Now you see why it's an anonymous author. I didn't write this. Four million are in the armed services, which leaves 15 million to do the work. Take from that total 14,800,000 people who work for the state and city governments, and that leaves 200,000 to do the work. There are 188,000 in hospitals, so that leaves just 12,000 to do the work. Now there are 11,998 people in prison, so that leaves just two people to do the work, you and me. And you're standing there reading this, so no wonder I'm tired. Now, that's a funny look at a not-so-funny reality, isn't it? The truth of the matter is there are a lot of people who are not doing what they should. And another sad truth of the matter is there are many of us who are believers in Christ who are not doing what we should be doing either. Not only in terms of serving God, but I mean even beyond that, there are some of us who are taking the place of God. We say, God, if it wasn't for me, your work wouldn't get done. Have you ever thought that? Sometimes I talk to people and they say, Roger, I don't share my faith because um, I'll mess it up so bad that person will never come to Christ. And I always tell those individuals, friend, you're not that good. You're really not that good. I mean, do you, do you think you can get in the way of God bringing somebody to himself? The scripture is clear that God is the one who draws all men and women to himself. The Bible says people don't come to faith because of the cleverness of our presentation. It is God's work. Now, that that is no excuse for us not to be prepared. That is not an excuse for us not to pray and ask God to prepare hearts and minds for people so that they will come to faith. But we have to understand it is not our job to save anyone. It is our job to share the good news of the gospel. And then it is God's job to draw that person to faith. But sometimes we try to take his place. And we forget that God said in Matthew 28, as he gave us a great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. What did he say? And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, you're not doing it alone. And in those times where we're saying, well, I'm the only one doing God's work and nobody else will help, are we doing the work that God calls us to do in Matthew, uh, where he says in Matthew 9, 37 through 38, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. See, God says your job is to pray that God would raise up others. Are we doing that? Elijah said, God, I'm it. There's no one else but me. Now, not only was he not doing what he should have been doing, he's also wrong. Because you'll remember that earlier in 1 Kings 18, 13, we told that there was a guy named Obadiah who had a hundred other prophets who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal that were also in a cave somewhere. He wasn't by himself. Now, God could have slammed him, but he doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he says, Elijah, let me get your eyes off yourself and look back, get them back where they belong, which is on God. So in 1 Kings 19, 11 through 14, it says, So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking it into pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
and after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. And it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle. And he went out and he stood before the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenants. He have torn down thine altars. They've killed thy prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God goes, Elijah, we just went over this. Right? Just like Peter, he he takes his eyes off God. He's looking at the storm raging around him. And so what God does is he brings a storm to shake Elijah up. As he sees the power of God, as he sees all this happening, he says God's not in the earthquake, he's not in the fire, he's not in this hurricane force wind, but instead he's, he's in the eye of the storm, he's, in the, he's the peace in the midst of the storm. And Elijah can at least recognize that. And at that moment where, where he says God, once again, remember he's a worn out, wounded man. And sometimes as believers, we come and we want to correct somebody's theology when they're in the midst of a dark time. And that's not the time to do that, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the time to come and sit with the person and just be present and love them and let them know you're not alone. God could have powered up and said, Elijah, you keep telling me you're all alone. Do you want to talk about being all alone? Let me tell you about being all alone. Do you remember being on Mount Carmel where there were 450 enemy prophets those pagan priests who were coming against you? Look around, Elijah. Are any of them left? No, they're wiped out. You're the only one left. Why? Because of my power, because of my protection. Is that what God does here? Does God come with a hammer? Or does he put his arm around Elijah and say, Elijah, listen, I'm right here with you. You're not alone. And because you can't look up and see me, because you're not looking around and seeing others, let me help you. Let me help you to see what's really going on. Because in verses 15 through 18, God goes on to say, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazel, king over Aram. And Jehu, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mehalah, you shall anoint him as prophet in your place. And it shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha will put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. We saw earlier how in the middle of the drought, God opened the heavens and the rain came and the flood came. And now what God does in the middle of this drought, God opens the heavens again and he pours out people. Elijah, you think you're all alone. Elijah, let me tell you who's out there. Let me help you to see that you're not alone. You you say you're the only one left to do my work. Well, I want you to go raise up another prophet named Elisha. He's going to be your successor. He's going to be the guy who's going to take your place. And, And you were worried about who's going to deal with wicked Queen Jezebel and King Ahab, these king and queen over Israel that are wicked. And you're saying, if it wasn't for you, that it wouldn't be taken care of. He says, let me tell you what I'm going to do, Elisha. I've got people in power you don't even know. I've got people already taking care of this. Hazel, who is made king of Aram, it's his army that's going to kill King Ahab. And when you read about Jehu later, he's the king of Israel who's going to wipe out uh, King 
Queen Jezebel. Elijah, you say without you it doesn't get done. God says, I've got people to take care of it. As you think about what's happening here with Elijah, what is it you're worried about right now? Is there some situation this morning that you're sitting here saying, God doesn't even know what's going on? Or God's asleep at the wheel, and if it wasn't for me, these things wouldn't be getting done. If you were to look in your heart of hearts this morning and be honest, is there something like that this morning where you're trying to carry the load for God? Where you're trying to do as Elijah did and do God's work for him and think God is not in control? You know, sometimes the problem is we miss what God is doing because we miss God completely, right? We want to see him in the spectacular. We want to see fire fall from heaven. We want to see uh, God working in ways that we're going, can't miss that. We want to see the fire. We want the earthquake. We want to, we want to have the spectacular. But where God sometimes shows up instead is those tiny little whispers in the wind that are easy for us to miss, right? Max Licato wrote a book called The Gentle Thunder. And in it, he has this poem. He says, once there was a man who dared God to speak. Burn the bush like you did for Moses, God, and I will follow. Collapse the walls like you did for Joshua, God, and I will fight. Still the waves like you did on Galilee, God, and I will listen. And so the man sat by a bush near a wall close to the sea, and he waited for God to speak. And God heard the man, so God answered. And he sent fire, not for a bush, but for a church. He brought down a wall, not of brick, but of sin. And he stilled a storm, not of the sea, but of a soul. And God waited for the man to respond. And he waited, and he waited. But because the man was looking at bushes and not hearts, bricks and not lives, seas and not souls... He decided that God had done nothing. Finally, he looked at God and he said, have you lost your power? And God looked at the man and said, have you lost your hearing? Is there anyone here this morning who's lost their hearing? Are there any of us this morning that have taken our eyes off the Lord and we're looking at the wind and the waves and all we can see are the storms that are raging around us and we've forgotten to look up at God? God tells us this morning to look at him. The Bible tells us in it, God says, be still and know that I am God. Look around and listen for the whispers. Yes, God can work in spectacular ways. All you have to do is look at the cross this morning, friends, to know that. To see how God left his throne in heaven and he took on flesh and blood and he went to the cross and he spread his arms and he gave his life, spilling his blood to wash away our sins. And people in that day said, it's over. It's finished. Death defeated the Lord. And Jesus Christ said, it is finished. But when he said it is finished, it meant paid in full. And in a spectacular way, as his body was buried in the tomb, three days later he rose from the dead, showing he had conquered sin and death and Satan. Yes, God can work and still does in spectacular ways. He's given us the gift of eternal life. But there are other times he works in the mundane. And the whispers that you and I miss because we're so busy in life, we forget the day-to-day minor miracles that we never see. I want you to put your hand on your chest for a moment right now.
What do you feel? If you don't feel your heart beating, switch hands, okay? (laughs) Do you feel that? That's a miracle. Take a deep breath. Everybody get a breath of air? That's a miracle. You see, we look to the Lord for eternal life and we forget that He is the sustainer of life. We forget in the mundane whispers of our day, in in the cry of a baby, the miracle of life is there. And we miss the whispers of God. And this morning I know some of you are sitting in the midst of a raging storm. And you're looking around and saying, where is God? Why won't he show up? And what we're doing is we're missing him because we're looking for the spectacular. And what God wants us to do is just be silent, just to lay our needs before him and trust him to come in and work with us. So I want to do that now. I want us to go to the Lord in prayer. Just bow your heads where you are and lay whatever need it is that you have before the Lord this morning. Whatever the burdens are that you carried in here this morning where you're saying, God, I'm all alone like Elisha, Elijah did. Say, no, I'm not alone. Just all around you are reminders you're not alone. You're part of a larger family called the body of Christ. And God hasn't left you alone. He hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't forgotten you. He's concerned with the day-to-day physical needs of food and rest and shelter. God knows who you are. He knows what your needs are. So as we lay those needs before the Lord, ask Him to help. Ask Him to show up and take care of those needs. Lord God, you know some are in the midst of a raging storm right now. There's a relationship that's on the rocks. It could be a job that's in jeopardy. It might be a a loss of health or a loved one. And in the midst of the storm, Lord, we confess it's easy to lose sight of you. Would you help us, Lord, to lock our eyes on you, knowing you love us and you will never leave us. Father, would you not only meet that need this morning that's been mentioned to you, but would you also give them your peace that passes all understanding. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are going to be prayer leaders at the front after this closing song of worship. If you have a need, we would love to pray with you, to strengthen and support you, to stand with you in the midst of the storm. Now I want you to stand and sing this closing song as we worship our Lord.